Welcome to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. I'm Sarah Waring, editor at Eurozine, the online magazine that publishes selected content from a network of over 90 partner journals and associated publications and organisations from across Europe and beyond. In this podcast, Eurozine editors talk with partner editors and authors published on the website about content and issues that we would like to further explore and share. In this episode, I'm joined by Glenta editor Jöran Dahlberg, who is also on the Eurozine Board of Trustees. Jöran works in Gothenburg, Sweden. I work in Vienna, Austria. We're recording this conversation at distance, but keeping things nice and informal. Jöran, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'll start by talking a little bit about the name Glenta. I'm intrigued. It has a very vibrant ring to it. In translation, it means glade an opening in the forest, which is very evocative. Can you tell me, Joran, how did Glenta come into being and what is the journal's ethos? Well, the first question, you know, why, why this name? Many people have asked me that. Quite a few people asked me, aha, so you're, you're influenced by Heidegger and his concept Lichtung, a place for things or ideas to reveal themselves, but something that in itself, Lichtung, is, is really nothing. But we were never Heideggerians. I don't, well, the proof of that being, I can't even pronounce that word uh, properly. No, come <laughs> uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> but we made use of some of the, these connotations, like you said, the clearing or a glade in the woods. But in Swedish, it's also glenta, to glenta is also a verb. It means to open a door slightly just enough to, you know, peek mm-hmm. in, but, but, but not being noticed. Or for that matter, to, to, to get some um, fresh air into your own room from where you are opening the door, you know. Okay, yeah, so, so, so it's more of, more of like a possibility or an intriguing, sneaky look at something that might not be otherwise available. Something like that, yeah. And, 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 and maybe there's even something to the, to the Heidegger concept I'm not saying that I'm being becoming more Heideggerian over the years. It's that's that is certainly not the case, <laughs> at least not certainly not politically. But uh, the idea of of Glenta being kind of an, an empty center for whatever could it could be filled with that that's that's quite true. I think you know. When did the publication begin? It started in 1993, quite some time ago, and I think already from the beginning the the the, the idea was you know for that glenta, the issue that it could contain everything, you know, every aspect, every genre, every, you know, subject, or at least that every issue could be ready to do that. And we, we were so focused at a time at, at, at every issue, you know, so we, we didn't even sell subscriptions or anything like that, because it was not based on that kind of continuity. It was based on, you know, each, each is issue in its own right, you know, but yeah, we had to lower our expectations a little bit since then you know every issue can't contain everything unfortunately mm-hmm. but still there are a few ideas the, the idea is still you know that an issue could take any form no perhaps not any form but whichever form is appropriate to address a certain subject okay so that neatly brings us around to perhaps talking about your most recent issue we published three articles from Glenta's recent issue and yes it provides us with a conceptual toolbox 
I was had the pleasure to edit three articles from the toolbox, one by Matilda Amundsen Bergström, who considers reviving temperance as a virtue. There was a piece by Miriam Rash, who discusses how to debunk our communication-obsessed world. And then Karl Parmas, who investigates moments of suspension that evade resolution. Could you tell us a little bit about your editorial position about this selection? Perhaps I could say something about the toolbox as a, as a concept in itself, to, that we have made use of to produce this issue, you know. We use different kind of forms to address different kind of subjects and and we also borrow forms. And this, you know, we've, we've done issues like an encyclopedia, for example. And in this form, we're borrowing a form from, yeah, which is not from the publishing field, you know, so it's uh, the toolbox. And try to give the issue both this kind of urgency, you know, that we need tools now, you know, and also to give these kind of instructions to the contributors so that they could write or contribute in, in a way that is perhaps a, a new way of addressing things also for them, you know, mm. and, and trying to make use of this as a, as a whole also, as, as, a, as a toolbox. And I don't know, I actually started from, I had read a text by Audre Lord called the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And a slip of memory mm. made it into a question. Will the master's tools dismantle the master's house? And I always, I, I read the text many times, but I always remembered this as a question. Even though I also remember that her answer is, is very, she's very clear about that. She thinks that it will never do. The master's tools can never. But still I remembered it as a question. And this was a question that it all started with how we presented this to these authors, for example, or then these, these three. Uh, this concept of temperance, like you, uh, what you mentioned, is a very old concept. Most people probably think of it as a bit outdated, perhaps even naive or, uh, you know. So in that sense, it was, the challenge was really to update it, to show that a concept that had a, a, a meaning in different historical situations could have perhaps another meaning and even more powerful meaning today, how you could make use of this as a kind of boundary setting, progressive boundary setting tool, you know. She talks a lot about boundaries and limits mm. and perceives how within our particular moment where we're constantly trying to self-regulate ourselves. She even mentions a diet or abstinence of various other orders. And what's interesting is for Matilda, she doesn't necessarily think that's the answer. Um, she's looking perhaps less on the individual and more in a collective sense of mm. temperance. How can we apply that virtue in a shared way? Am I right? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It was a fascinating piece. And yeah. Miriam's piece? Miriam comes from another, she's, she's really taking up an invented conceptual tool from a philosopher from the 20th century, the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze. And his ideas of what philosophy is, or what critical philosophy is, was, was really important for us in, in doing this issue. He's claiming, you know, that philosophy is uh, the art of uh, forming you know, and, and inventing concepts. She's bringing his concept into a, a contemporary situation. She's studying the net network society, you know, in, in, and so. And that was also the challenge here to, to really make use of these tools 
in your own field, you know, to, to show that. And, uh, and Matilda is an historian, Mariam mm. is a philosopher, and uh, Carl Palmos is like um, studying society in, in a critical way from a wide range of perspectives, actually. Mm. So it's, mm. and, and that's what he is. And he is inventing this concept, the suspended state. It's his own invention. So, so yes, he takes different moments of history, like in 1989, mm. um, and uses cultural effects, so often through elements of sound or video clips, artworks even, that mm. he thinks resonate with this period of history, and then somehow explains what happened politically in that moment as a form of suspension without resolution. Yeah, and he even has soundtracks to all these changes. Yeah, yeah, so there's a bit of Daft Punk. (laughs) (laughs) And Miriam also incorporates uh, contemporary elements. So her piece begins with a reference to a talk that she gave at a festival. Mm, And that's a a really wonderful moment when the guy from the audience just shouts out what seems like an arbitrary comment and it forms the basis of her essay about Mm, being an idiot and... Yeah, debunking this communication. Yeah, yeah, a great collection. <laughs> and all of these, they also made their own short films, actually. Oh, yes? That were presented recently online. So they've written the piece and then they have uh, all made a one-minute short film. <laughs> ah, fantastic. In presenting, in presenting their own tool, you know, so, yeah. And this is something that Glenta often does. It's much more than a quarterly cultural journal. You, you often have other elements events even when circumstances permit yeah we do i think cultural journal is a perfect basis for doing a lot of things actually it's kind of a platform for many different activities i, I mean the editorial structure of a cultural journal could really be made use in many different ways and we have tried to do that we actually we started by making parties that's how we financed uh, the journal in through several years actually and where did you uh, host these parties well they had to be hosted in places where we can make as much profit as possible that would mean we could borrow a place or uh, so it was not ordinary clubs but but we tried to arrange our own uh, things in in the kind of um, gray zone of, of these kind of structures Presenting music and uh, readings and dancing and yeah. Uh huh. Okay. And that's so. that's what we did to finance it. But then for many years we had we had also something called the philosophy bar, which is kind of a self-explanatory concept. It was philosophy discussed in a bar, and that was very popular. The topic was always the same. It was uh, what has X to say us today. You know, mm-hmm. some old philosopher. Do you remember a particular? moment that stayed with you from those days yeah we started by borrowing like 12 shares i think you know because we thought yeah it's it's a few of us and then perhaps a few friends will come you know and uh, we thought that that would probably be it but we had to borrow more and more (laughs) shares and it was in the end it was people actually tried to bribe them because it was the queue was so long outside so people tried to bribe themselves into an evening devoted to Hegel or something. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, that's something I remember. Did it help if you brought your own camping stall or if you had your own chair? No, no, no. I don't know know if that bribing uh, helped. I wasn't the one who got it. And 
we still uh, have parties uh, from time to time, actually, with, with uh, I mean, trying to combine readings and perhaps uh, sh very short reading, very short talks, music performance and dancing, clubbing, all at, this, at one evening. So, mm -hmm. so we try to do these things, but we also have other kind of... Um, well, we, actually, we're also publishing books. So we have a small publishing house. But I would say that also in that sense, we're not really a journal and a publishing house. So we're still and always a journal, you know. Yeah, first journal, and foremost a journal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a journal publishing books, you know, mm. a journal publishing films, a journal throwing parties, a journal. We also had, you know, tried different formats that many journals do nowadays. We had an app, we, we tried a podcast. I, I don't think Glenta's best performances are in the field of a podcast well up until now then up until but, uh, now yes <laughs> <laughs> yes um, but it yeah. sounds to me that you really do you're entrepreneurial with what you do you reach out to your community with a host of various material that has its roots within within the cultural journal but uh, beyond what's also interesting to me is that you do that within the swedish context but then you reach out to other cultures. Can you describe a recent international collaboration? Yes. I mean, since we're based in Sweden, in, in, in Gothenburg, in Sweden, it's not, there are not too many Swedish speakers around. There are like 10 million in Sweden and uh, yeah, not so many outside Sweden. <laughs> so uh, sometimes, you, and also Gothenburg, it's not, it's not a big town. So sometimes it could really feel like we are, yeah, really in the margins of whatever it is, you know. One, uh, one of the things that has been important for us in dealing with this is to be a part of Eurozine. Mm. But other things has been to cooperate with uh, the journals from other parts of the world. So, for example, lately, I mean, the, 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 we did uh, a cooperation uh, two years ago with a journal from uh, Beirut. It's called uh, Bidayat. That we found, it's, it's only in Arabic, so we, had, we found it in a, there was an article published somewhere. And somehow it resembled, when they described it, it resembled Glenta. So uh, we, we contacted them and, and Beirut is obviously very different from Gothenburg. Well, it's for, also at the moment under a great deal of, I mean, it's often under change, but uh, with the recent explosion and uh, political yeah. situation, uh, do you have further contact with those you collaborated with? Yeah, we do have, we do have. What we did was, when we started off, it was we wanted to translate a whole issue of, their, of them, a very journal, into Swedish. Because we've done that before with the South African Journal, and uh, just to publish, to, to, to keep the composition, you know, to keep the address, not to, you know, not in any way to Swedify the content, and uh, not in a specific article, but also by composition. So we translated the whole issue. They didn't want us to translate the issue one of the exact issues, they wanted to compose it by themselves. Okay, uh, especially for you, for Glinta? Especially for us, but, yes. but we told them that it has, it, but it does not uh, include any editing, you know, it was just a composition of the, of the journal, but they were really uh, into this, you know, they wanted mm. to make uh, the best issue they could do, you know. And then we translated it, and, th and that was very interesting because there are not too many things translated from Arabic into Swedish. No, I doubt very much. It's a, a great leap. And I love the way you describe uh, to Swedify something as well. It's, um, 
not what you wanted to do. <laughs> so no, it was a direct translation from the it Arabic. It was a direct translation. And when we did that, you know, we, we also tried, because there are a lot of people, Arabic-speaking people, has come to Sweden lately, especially in 2015, a lot of Syrians came to Sweden. But also before that and, 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 and um, after that, even though not the same amounts, of course, as we all know. So we also tried to really engage people that were not Arabic-speaking, but has not been working with translations. So we try to in engage new people, you know, in this project, in the translation process. So we, that was also an aspect of the whole thing, uh, an important aspect and a difficult aspect since we had to work a lot with these translations. But while mm. doing this and, and in relation to what I just said about, you know, these translations and because what we, what we found out when I started saying that we, we feel that we're in the margins of things in Gothenburg in Sweden and Beirut is, yeah, it's one of the oldest cities in the world where people still mm. live, you know, and, and it's, it's the center of a lot of things, you know, and, and it's very different, you know, but still it, there are so many similarities when we work, when we sit together in the editorial process and work with these kind of things. It's fantastic to see that there's been so, so really great moments when you, when you sit down and you just see that you're facing the same issues, not only, you know, practical issues, but also, you know, in terms of editorial decisions and st stuff like that, you know. Okay, yeah. I, and I, I love that. I love that cultural bridge making can provide this. Especially to, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Especially with this, uh, with the Arabic language. For example, when we when we edited these translations, we found, for example, someone said that this is one of the most influential uh, uh, writers during the 19th century in the Arab world. Someone referred to uh, that was how an Arabic writer was described. And then, you know, to find out a little bit more about this guy, Googled him or her, and there was nothing, you know. Mm. Two sentences in English, you know, <laughs> nothing. Obviously, I know that the internet is slightly biased toward <laughs> <laughs> English, mm. the English language and, uh, and what is uh, written about in the English language, but not to that extent. I, I didn't know that really, you know. Yeah, there are, it's uh, historic as well that uh, so many wonderful writers fall into obscurity if the main language of, of the epoch is different to, to that of the original writing. But uh, what you're doing here is, is starting to break down some of those barriers, it seems to me. You mentioned also Syrians arriving in Sweden. Um, this is another aspect of the work that you've done at Glenta to work with issues of immigration. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think we've tried to address it in... For example, we did three issues in a row about migration 2014. One of the things that we tried to do is to try to address a topic or a question or a concept from as many perspectives that seems appropriate, you know. That means that we make use of a certain playfulness, but not forgetting about the urgency of the topic, you know. And that was what we tried to do in this big project about migration and immigration. And we tried to both keep the core questions that is dealt with everywhere, you know, but what can we do to, to contribute to these questions? I and mean, in these issues, we dealt with interstellar migration, you know, for example, how to migrate into space, you know. So there is a, a small field of scientists and uh, other people preparing for different kind of arc is ARC the word where yes, Noah yes. used? Exactly, it's, it's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when we've really used everything 
available to us on on Earth, then yes, time to find another space to to go off in in a separate arc. Yeah. And it was a whole field of, of very uh, interesting and generous people providing us with drawings and uh, plans for this kind of thing. But we also uh, we tried to put that these kind of things or migration of animals or this kind of marginal aspect of the core political and very urgent questions, you know, try to put them side by side in these issues. And at the same time, we also had a, an asylum seeker blogging on our website uh, on a daily basis the experiences of an asylum seeker, you know, the day-to-day struggles. And also when she was denied asylum and through these processes and then applying again. And, and we first we translated it from Persian, then we translated it from English. And then in the end, she started to write a little bit in Swedish herself, you know, so it was <laughs> also this language-wise process. So trying to move back and forth, you know, from the center to the margins and uh, we move in between the cultural field and the, the field of science, also natural sciences. and But this center-periphery movements, we think that this gives new tension, or, or not necessarily new answers, but new aspects, new, new tensions to questions that's most often talked about in very similar ways all the time, you know. Mm. It's very predictable how, to, how these topics are addressed, not only in the mainstream media, but also actually in, in, in a lot of journals, I would say. It's an approach that's very close to how I also enjoy looking at topics. Mm. It's an opportunity not to narrow our vision of what a subject means to us, but look at the interconnectivity of various ideas to yeah. reveal surprising questions sometimes. Not necessarily mm. solutions, but to look at it from a different angle. Going yeah. back to perhaps what you said of peering around the corner of the door, if you don't presume what you'll find... <laughs> then you can have some interesting encounters, perhaps. Um, it's also to make, make use of some kind of uncertainty, you know, to make uncertainties productive, I think. You mm. know, not, not only both in relation to a specific text in terms of genre. We, we never make a division between different genres. and We, we mix, uh, you know, poetry, art and uh, natural sciences and uh, political debates. Sometimes it's even good for the reader not to know what genre it is when you start to read, you know. Sometimes it's only confusing in a bad way, but you can make use of it, I think, as a potentially good entrance, this kind of uncertainty. Yeah, especially at a time when we're increasingly creating our own bubbles. Maybe it's a good idea to have have a surprise every now and again. Yeah. And what's going to surprise us in the these forthcoming months or this next year? What, what's Glenta got hidden in the wings? <laughs> we, our next international collaboration of this kind that I mentioned before that we are planning to translate a whole issue of a journal. Our next journal like that will be uh, Turkish. So that we are planning, but that will have to wait until um, this uh, corona situation is over. But we're also planning a long-term new publishing project that will be something that will be a mix of natural sciences and humanities and art and literature. Like I said before, we, we also make, we often make use of natural sciences when we are addressing a topic. The questions are not formulated from that perspective, but now we will try to do it the other way around. So that the questions would rather be formulated from the perspective of natural sciences and addressed from other angles. So we're trying out 
one issue a year that will be um, almost like a journal within a journal. Mm-hmm. See how, how that works out. Okay, wonderful. And yeah. I've heard that there's also something for you more on a, a personal basis that's uh, due to be launched soon. Yes, I'm also writing from time to time. And I've mainly been writing in um, Swedish over the years. But now I've had the chance to write uh, a small book in English, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be out very soon. And it's called Ghost Life. So something, uh, <laughs> would you like to leave it there or tell us a little bit more about the content? It's very hard to talk about ghosts, actually. It's best to read about ghosts and to write about ghosts. They appear all the time when you read and write. But in talking, I don't know. It has to be specific circumstances to have a good um, talk about ghosts. It's really hard. I've been writing about ghosts for very long time. (laughs) But I've always found it very hard to talk about them. Well, on that note, I look forward to the book and also this journal within a journal that will be based around the natural scientists. That's something Mm. very much to look forward to. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Joran. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. And all the best. To you too. Bye then. Bye bye. You've been listening to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. For those of you who would like to delve further into Glenta's toolbox, it can be found via Joran's editorial under the title A Conceptual Toolbox on Eurozine.com. Also, please do subscribe to the podcast and rate us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you found us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter for the latest updates on Eurozine's content. I'm Eurozine editor Sarah Waring, I hope you've enjoyed listening.